Hello everyone, this is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. Thank you for electing to join me on this fine morning, afternoon, evening, whenever it is that you are listening. I sincerely hope that you had an opportunity to listen to the last episode. It was our first in our Notre Dame in the Civil War three-part series. So the first episode actually details the service of Lieutenant Frank Baldwin, who was an Elkhart, Indiana native, who actually withdrew from the University of Notre Dame as a first year and enlisted in the Union Army in 1861. So just a wonderful story. Uh, it's, it's not a necessarily a happy story, not to, not to give any spoilers out. Just go listen to it. But it's a story of dedication, a story of sacrifice, a story of service. And as I traditionally do, I normally reread each script after I release the episode. After it's been released, I might get a little bit of feedback about it, just in case there's any addendums that you know I'd like to add to the episode, uh, talking about the previous episode on the current episode. And I didn't really find any major addendums, but in rereading the script, it was still just so incredibly jarring that this was the story of a boy. And I know 18 is the legal age in the United States and all, and that at 18 you're much more mature than when you're, say, 14. But just think about what Baldwin and hundreds of thousands of other soldiers experienced in that war. You know, keeping in mind that a full 20% of the soldiers between both armies were 18 and under. That is just harrowing. So if you haven't had an opportunity to go listen to it, go on back and do yourself a favor. So anyway, so this is the Civil War series of sorts here. So how about a quick fun fact that I was kind of digging around when I'm doing research. Every once in a while I just find mind-blowing facts and normally I don't have anyone to tell them to, but here we go. Uh, you're going to get this one. So according to Ancestry.com, certainly a reputable source as they are the purveyor of almost all of the military records. But as of 2014, this just blew my mind. Uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs was still paying a Civil War pension. So the last surviving child of a Civil War Union veteran at that time was still living and still receiving a small monthly pension payment nearly 150 years after the war ended. To me, that is just utterly mind-blowing. 150 years later, now I, I think the child, or not the child, the child of the, the veteran, who obviously was a very, you know, a very old person, has passed away, but 150 years after the conflict ended, there was still a direct line to it. So, Anyways, as a friendly reminder, if you dig the show, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. So click that purple podcast icon on your iPhone. You can find it on Spotify as well as Podbean at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. So if you'd like, please subscribe or do whatever you got to do to make sure you're getting all the new episodes. Uh, if you're on 
excuse me, if you're on Apple, please feel free to give a five-star rating. It just really helps the show get noticed, and it's really awesome to see new people subscribing every episode. So interact with the show on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onward to victory. I call this headquarters or HQ. If you ever hear me refer to HQ, I'm talking about the Facebook page. That's where all of the show updates, sometimes video, uh, all the new episodes are kind of announced through there. So if you'd like to send the show an email, you can do so at onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. So if you'd like to name yourself to the Onward to Victory Consensus All-American list, you can do so very simply. A $10 donation to the show will sponsor an episode and get your name called out as a Consensus All-American over the air. So you can donate at paypal.me slash Onward to Victory for a one-time donation, or if you'd like to donate a certain amount per month, any denomination is greatly, greatly appreciated, but you can jump over to patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast and i mentioned any support is greatly appreciated and so this can also include liking of course listening what you're doing right now sharing the episodes and corresponding with the show as well so those are always free so and as always thank you to joseph rakish who allows the show to use his song canute rockney as the theme you can find the jam on spotify itunes soundcloud or youtube so go give it a spin i feel like it sets the tone for the show very well and if you would like to add it to your pregame playlist i always mention my pregame playlist because i am very uh, adamant about before watching a Notre Dame game I have to get through my playlist maybe one of these days we'll talk about some of our favorite pregame playlist songs they're all Irish in theme but uh, it's on mine I listen to it before every game so you should too show announcements so I'm actually working on securing some time with author Jeff Harrell who whose book pardon me Rockney of Ages will be the newest biography on Irish coach Canute Rockney. It's due out this year, possibly even next month or in March. But if you remember, he will, uh, I kind of mentioned him during episode 10, which was the true crime episode about Canute Rockney's plane crash. So Jeff is someone who writes extremely eloquently about the mob bomb theory. And in fact, when I was doing research for the episode 10, uh, again, the true crime episode about the, the plane crash, I really, as I mentioned, just very elegant, very eloquent. Yeah, Jeff wrote an article for Notre Dame Magazine, which is the Notre Dame alumni magazine in the spring of last year about the theory. So again, go back and listen to episode 10 if you haven't already, but I'm really, really excited at the prospect of talking to Jeff next time I'm up in South Bend. Uh, he is, uh, first of all, he has a really interesting background and he's an interesting person and he's got a ton of interesting things to say and he is the authority on Coach Rockney and, of course, this mob bomb theory. But if you'd like to learn a little bit more about that project, again, I'm looking to do that episode after the Civil War series here, but head on over to CanuteRockney.com to learn more about Harold's Rockney of Ages. And if you're ever curious about who owned the domain CanuteRockney.com, now you know. All right, so, oh, before we move on, uh, so big news on the Irish front. The current Irish front is uh, touchdown Tommy Reese has been elevated to offensive coordinator. I, I know a lot of people 
when he was first announced as the interim offensive coordinator for the bowl game, the Camping World Bowl game against Iowa State, there, he, it wasn't met with a whole lot of enthusiasm. But me personally, I will say that I am enthusiastic about the move. I think he's got a great rapport with Ian Book, and who's, of course, quarterback Ian Book. So I think that's going to serve the program exceedingly well, having an offensive coordinator who is clearly, I mean, he coached Ian personally last year, and having Ian come back for a fifth year is fantastic. And having O.C., and you know, face of the program quarterback is going to bode really well. And soon, gosh, we have a whole hut to pack in for this offseason. We'll do kind of a preview, a position-by-position position preview of what we got coming back. So while wide receiver is kind of being gutted as far as what we had, pass catchers including tight end Cole Komet's kind of being gutted from what we had last year, there's still some really interesting and exciting prospects coming back. So I guess that's the big news on the Irish front, that Tom Reese is now the offensive coordinator and will work directly with Kelly with the game planning and all of that. So here we go, episode 15. So per show tradition, we assigned someone to represent the episode who played for Notre Dame and who also wore that episode's number. So for instance, last episode was the uh, Emil Red Sitco episode since Red wore number 14 at Notre Dame. So anyways, Episode 15 could be the free safety from 1986 to 1989 Pat Terrell episode, who I remember taking his 1990 rookie card and asking my dad what a rookie was, because I think I saw the card and I didn't know what that meant. So that's when I learned what a rookie was when I saw his card for the first time. I wasn't three years old, which would have been how old I was when the card came out, but I think I was maybe five or six. So it could also be the Kevin McDougal episode, who was the quarterback for the Irish right after the Rick Meyer area, era. Pardon me. And it could also be wide receiver Will Fuller, current Houston Texan episode, one of the more exciting Notre Dame offensive players in recent history. So, but however, for teaching me what a rookie is, let's give this one to Pat Terrell. Uh, whose past breakup secured the 1988 victory against Miami in the, the classic Catholics versus the Convicts game. All right, so let's switch over gear. Let's switch the gears into the, the Civil War here. Hopefully you enjoyed last episode. We're going to get more of that here. So uh, as I did last episode, uh, I'm going to share another personal anecdote. But have you ever heard of the hobby called Living History? The textbook definition is, according to Wikipedia, quote, an activity that incorporates historical tools, activities, and dress into an interactive presentation that seeks to give observers and participants a sense of stepping back in time. Although it does not necessarily seek to reenact a specific event in history, living history is similar to and sometimes incorporates historical reenactment. Living history is an educational medium used by living history museums, historic sites, heritage interpreters, schools, and historical reenactment groups to educate the public or their own members in particular areas of history, such as clothing styles, pastimes, and handicrafts, or to simply convey a sense of everyday life of a certain period of history." End quote. Thanks for bearing with me. That was a long uh, textbook definition, but some of you may know where this is heading now. I'm talking about Civil War reenactments. 
And last episode, as I mentioned earlier, I talked about the kind of flashpoint moment where my interest in the Civil War started with a simple book. So within two years of first acquiring that book uh, via my parents, of course, I was a little young um, and didn't, didn't make the purchase on my own, but, but within two years, I found myself as a preteen defying pretty much every bone in my four-sport playing self. And I, quote, enlisted in the 30th Indiana Infantry, Company F, an outfit of Civil War reenactors based out of my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I've mentioned that I had a paper route as a kid, and this is true, and I would actually read almost daily uh, the sports page, all the happenings of Irish football, among other programs of interest, you know, Major League Baseball and all that. But really, I was using the money I was saving from the paper route to buy reenactor gear. And it was a mighty expensive habit. So if you ever see those reenactors, first of all, yes, they're, they're probably, they're all normal people, but they're probably about as nerdy as it gets. And I say this with love. But really, they, there is a lot of dedication that goes into the hobby and a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of finances. Within a couple of years, I had everything. Jacket, pants, canteen, hat, belt, period, toothbrush, silverware, knapsack, you name it. So I'll, I was about 12 at this time, so I couldn't legally carry a period musket into the staged fights yet. But I'll never forget my first Civil War reenactment. It was April 2000 at Shof Park in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, in short, I guess the best way to describe it is, sincerely, it was sensory overload. I thought I was a Civil War buff, which, you know, when you're 12 years old, this could actually feel pretty isolating most of the time. Needless to say, if you're a Civil War buff and you're 12, most of your friend group or most of your peers do not share the same interest. So, <laughs> but here I was, surrounded by Civil War buffs, and everyone took their, quote, impression, or the level of their authenticity, very seriously. I was quickly reassigned, being a minor, to the medical corps. So, among all the blue and gray clad soldiers, horses, and cannon, there was someone dressed up as an 1800s priest excellently bearded, I'll never forget that, who was meandering around the Union troops, raising his hand and giving blessings to the soldiers heading into battle. So, as I mentioned, I was quickly reassigned to the Medical Corps, and after the battle was over, I got to participate in some of the staged surgeries at the medical headquarters with some of the wounded soldiers. I'm using air quotes here, but you get the gist. So, the priest, whom I mentioned before, made his way to the medical tents and continued to bless the wounded, perform last rites, all the above. And it was at this time that I realized that this man was not meant to impersonate just any priest, but Father William Corby, the most famous priest of the American Civil War. And he was not just any priest, he was Congregation of the Holy Cross, a Notre Dame priest. So I give you part two of Notre Dame in the Civil War series, The Priest, right after this.
William Corby was born in Detroit, Michigan on October 2nd, 1833, to Father Daniel Corby, who was an Ireland native, and Mother Elizabeth, who hailed from Canada. Daniel was a prominent real estate developer in Detroit and a fervent supporter of the many Detroit parishes, including building many of the churches. His son William was educated in what would be considered the public schools of the day until he was 16 years old. It was at that point he joined his father's business for a few years. Realizing that William had a calling to the priesthood and a strong desire to go to college, Daniel sent William and his two younger brothers to the University of Notre Dame roughly 220 miles southwest of Detroit. The school was staffed then, just as it is today, by the Congregation of the Holy Cross. William and his brothers arrived in 1853. So at this point, Notre Dame was exactly 11 years old. And the university was still a fledgling school at this point, and financial issues were commonplace for the first few decades of the school's existence. If you've ever been to campus, or if you've ever seen pictures, you are aware that Notre Dame sits adjacent to two small bodies of water, the St. Mary's and the St. Joseph's Lakes. A couple years after Corby arrived, the college, in addition to issues of finance, was also having issues with cholera, malaria, and typhus outbreaks thanks to the stream that connected the lakes and turned that area in between them into a swampy mess and a breeding ground for disease-carrying flies and insects. After two students died of disease in 1855, Father Edward Soren, president of the college, convinced the owner of the adjacent land with the damned stream to sell it to the college. Just as the transaction was nearing completion, the farmer left town. And Soren was reportedly furious. So he sent half a dozen of his strongest, brawniest priests to go and take matters into their own hands and destroy the dam with hammers, pickaxes, and shovels, which creates a really interesting mental picture. So, but anyways, the college hadn't acquired the land yet, but the marsh soon dried up and the diseases disappeared. Isn't the early history of Notre Dame interesting? Corby rose up the ranks quickly, entering the novitiate in 1856 and being fully ordained as a priest three years later in 1859. As was mentioned in the last episode, Soren soon named now Father Corby as the Prefect of Discipline, who naturally would have handled all the disciplinary matters in a Dean of Students type role. In 1861, he actually became a pastor at a local South Bend church. So in that same year, 1861, the American Civil War broke out. Several students, including subject of the last episode, Frank Baldwin, joined the infantry. Father Corby, as well as seven other Notre Dame priests, joined the Union Army's chaplain corps. In addition to these men, more than 80 sisters 
of the Holy Cross volunteered to nurse the sick and wounded back to health in the army hospitals. Upon entering the chaplain corps, Corby was soon assigned to the 88th New York Volunteer Infantry in late 1861. Very appropriately, the regiment would gain esteem as a member of the famous Irish Brigade. The unit was comprised mostly of Irish immigrants or the sons of Irish immigrants. Throughout the year 1862, the brigade would see combat in almost every major battle of the Eastern Theater of the War. So, just to clarify, when we discussed Frank Baldwin last episode, he would have been serving in what was known as the Western Theater of the War. So this included battles, the whole theater included battles, I should say, in the states of Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, North Carolina, Kentucky, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Yes, I know some of those states are technically east, but it was always considered the western theater of war. So battles, as we talked about last week, or excuse me, last episode, such as Shiloh and Stones River, would have been considered the western theater. So the Eastern Theater mostly consisted of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. Typically, after over a century and a half of research, books, film, movies, etc., the Eastern Theater typically gets more attention. And this is because the capital of the Union, Washington, D.C., of course, and the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, were both in the East, as well as many of the most famous commanders and the bat and battles were fought in the East as well. I think there may be a perception that chaplains were stationed safely in the rear during battle. This was not so. As the editor of Corby's Papers, L.F. Cole shared, quote, Chaplains, like officers, won the common soldier's respect with their bravery under fire. Father Corby's willingness to share the hardships of the men with a light-hearted attitude and his calm heroism in bringing spiritual and physical comfort to men in the thick of the fighting won him the esteem and friendship of the men he served. Frequently under fire, Corby moved among casualties on the field, giving assistance to the wounded and absolution to the dying. For days after the battles, he inhabited the field hospitals to bring comfort to men in pain." End quote. In 1862, the Irish Brigade served in the Seven Days Battles, the Battle of Antietam, which was the bloodiest single day of the war, as well as the Battle of Fredericksburg. At Fredericksburg, 545 of the brigade's 1,200 men were killed or wounded. One soldier later wrote that at Fredericksburg, quote, Irish blood and Irish bones cover that terrible field today. We were slaughtered, end quote. Heading into 1863, the Irish Brigade, once numbering around 3,000 men, had been reduced to just several hundred men. In the summer of 1863, after two years of fighting almost exclusively in Virginia, Confederate General Robert E. Lee planned a risky invasion of the North. 
it would ultimately lead to the Battle of Gettysburg, the largest battle in the history of North America, fought between July 1st and July 3rd, 1863. On the second day of the fight, the Irish Brigade went to move into action near the wheat field portion of the battlefield. A Confederate attack on the Union's left had been successful in driving most of the troops in blue back. The Union Army's flank was in danger of complete disintegration. The Irish Brigade, who served in Caldwell's division, and just to, for quick review, a division was typically a unit comprised of three to five brigades, were waiting to be thrown into action. They would see battle in mere minutes, throwing a vicious counterattack back at the Confederates. Corby later recounted that, quote, at this critical moment, I proposed to give a general absolution to our men, as they had absolutely no chance to practice their religious duties during the past two or three weeks, being constantly on the march, end quote. Corby quickly found an outcropping of rocks and stood in front of the men and boys of the Irish Brigade, raising his right hand high to give them absolution, knowing well that many of them would not return to the Union lines. A soldier later recalled the scene. Quote, there is yet a few minutes to spare before starting, and the time is occupied in one of the most impressive religious ceremonies I have ever witnessed. The Irish Brigade stood in columns of regiments closed in mass. As the large majority of its members were Catholics, the chaplain of the brigade, Reverend William Corby, proposed to give general absolution to all men before going into the fight. While this is customary in the armies of Catholic countries of Europe, it was perhaps the first time it was ever witnessed on this continent. Father Corby stood upon a large rock in front of the brigade, addressing the men. He explained what he was about to do, saying that each of them would receive the benefit of absolution by making a sincere act of contrition and firmly resolving to embrace the first opportunity of confessing his sins, urging them to do their duty as well, and reminding them of the high and sacred nature of their trust as soldiers and the noble object for which they fought. The brigade was standing at order arms, and as he closed his address, every man fell on his knees with head bowed down. Then, stretching his right hand towards the brigade, Father Corby pronounced the words of absolution. The scene was more than impressive. It was awe-inspiring. Nearby stood General Winfield Scott Hancock, surrounded by a brilliant throng of officers who had gathered to witness this very unusual occurrence. And while there was profound silence in the ranks, over to the left, out by the peach orchard in Little Round Top, the roar of battle rose and swelled and echoed through the woods. The act seemed to be in harmony with the surroundings. I do not think there was a man in the brigade who did not offer up a heartfelt prayer. 
For some, it was their last. They knelt there in their grave clothes. In less than a half hour, many of them were numbered with the dead of July 2nd, end quote. The Irish Brigade's fierce counterattack helped stave off the Confederate offensive during the second day of Gettysburg. Of the 530 fearless sons of Aaron, as they were called, 320 were killed that day. Corby's precious few moments with the brigade in prayer has been widely credited with giving the already elite fighting unit the fortitude to carry on in the face of such carnage. After the war, Father William Corby returned to Notre Dame. He would rise and become the third president of the university and then the sixth president of the university from 1866 to 1872 and then 1877 to 1881 respectively. His first appointment to the office would come one year after the Civil War had ended in 1865. Just as a Father Corby fun fact, he remains the only Notre Dame president to serve two non-consecutive terms. Kind of the Grover Cleveland of Notre Dame, if you will. Some of the achievements as president include opening Notre Dame's law school in 1869. In 1871, he oversaw the beginning of the construction of the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. When the main administration building burned down in 1879, it was Father Corby who raised the funds to build the new administration building. Perhaps you're familiar with it? It's the one with the Golden Dome. A touching memorial to the Irish Brigade was erected on the Gettysburg Battlefield in 1888. The monument, counting the granite base, is 19 and a half feet, and it's the shrine of a Celtic cross. At the foot of the cross lies a life-size Irish wolfhound, representative of honor and fidelity. I would strongly recommend if you're interested to Google it. It's really easy to find. Artist Paul Wood completed a piece called, quote, Absolution Under Fire in 1891. The piece, which depicts Corby blessing the Irish Brigade at Gettysburg, remains one of the most popular paintings of the war. I also used it for this episode's placard, so jump over to Facebook to the Onward to Victory page if you want to see it, if you haven't already. Also, it's very easy to Google as well. But if you want to see it in person, head over to the Snipe Museum of Art on Notre Dame's campus. The oil on canvas work measures over six feet tall and eight and a half feet wide. As something of a public service announcement and a plug for the Snipe Art Museum on Notre Dame's campus. The museum is always free and open to the public. Stop on in. See Absolution Under Fire. Corby died right after Christmas in 1897 at the age of 64. 
If some of you are familiar with Notre Dame's campus, there's a small cemetery on the main drive for which Corby is buried in, if you were ever interested in paying your respects. In 1910, a statue by William Murray depicting Corby with his right hand raised in a gesture of prayer and blessing was placed on the exact same boulder he stood on in July of 1863 with the Sons of Aaron at the Gettysburg Battlefield. It was the first statue of a non-general erected on the battlefield. So if you're ever there at Gettysburg, you simply can't miss it. A year later, on Memorial Day 1911, a replica of Corby's Gettysburg Monument was unveiled at Notre Dame. It stands upon a boulder that was brought to campus directly from the Gettysburg Battlefield. And appropriately, it sits right outside Corby Hall, where the Holy Cross religious order live. It is the only monument to Notre Dame and the Congregation of Holy Cross's contribution to the Civil War on campus. And it's in good company. With Touchdown Jesus and First Down Moses, you can still see Fair Catch Corby whenever you visit campus. We'll be right back. And I hope you all enjoyed that. It was wonderful getting a little bit more acquainted with Father William Corby and discussing the accomplishments and the things that he was able to do in his life and really just how important he was to the members of the Irish Brigade, particularly on that second day at the Battle of Gettysburg, July 2nd, 1863. And of course, if you can imagine, the men of the Irish Brigade had seen battle before at this point, countless times really, and there was no illusions about it. They knew that there would be many of them who would not return to camp that night, and the faith and the trust that they put into Father Corby at that particular moment is, I think it's, in the scene it was described as awe-inspiring, and I don't believe that there's a better word for it other than awe-inspiring. So if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to episode 14, which was the first episode in our three-part Notre Dame in the Civil War series, please go listen to it. You're probably picking up. Alex might want you to go listen to the first episode because I think the first episode is in line with this one, um, but with just a completely different, obviously completely different individual, but a completely different walk of life, but still sharing that sacrifice and dedication to a cause. And I think that that's just, that's one of my favorite things about reading about history is you see these people with such resolve and I don't think that's something that should be taken lightly. 
So go listen to episode 14, the first one in this in this run. And again, so that was the student turned soldier. This one was called the priest, and the next one is called the general. So maybe if you put your heads together or if you think about it hard enough, you might be able to figure out who the next one is going to be about. But go listen to the first one. Uh, and then, you know, listen to this one, of course. You're listening to it right now. And hopefully hopefully you're, you're enjoying it. Because, frankly, I absolutely love the Civil War. I love Notre Dame. And this has been an awesome collision of both. And, yeah, I made it kind of a, an, an admission earlier when I kind of told you that I, hey, you know what, when I was a kid, like quite literally, I wasn't, I was like a preteen or a young teenager. I was a Civil War reenactor. And, you know, as my family can kind of attest, that's something that, I did not tell a lot of people at that time. Uh, I was kind of the jock type, for lack of a better phrase. You know, I played sports, and, you know, that was kind of what really consumed much of my life. But I did have kind of this closet passion that, I, yes, I was crazy enough that, you know, on a hot July weekend, it's 95 degrees outside. Yeah, I'll wear the all wool, all the Civil War uniform, and I'll go do some living history or a Civil War reenactment or whatever have you. So, you know, something that I've learned in the last few years, uh, you know, being someone who had this passion and I didn't want anyone to know about it, I was very intentional about not telling people and very intentional about telling my siblings they better not tell anybody about this. But, you know, if you have a passion, it doesn't matter what it is. Don't hesitate to share it because passions need to be realized and they need to be shared. And, you know, if you have something you want to fly the flag for, do it willingly, do it enthusiastically and... I won't say a word about it. Go do, go make yourself as happy as you can. Pursue what you're passionate about. And don't hesitate to go try to find people who share it. So that's actually all I have today. So look out for episode three in this particular arc. It is titled The General. It's coming up. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm trying to book some time with Jeff Harrell, author, uh, Knut Rockney expert, and hopefully that'll be coming in a... Uh, an eventual show as well. I'm very excited about the prospect of being able to sit down with this guy, maybe go back to Augie's locker room. And if you haven't heard that conversation, uh, that was episode two, way back, I believe, in July. So, yeah, that was, it feels like an eternity ago. It hasn't been, but I guess the second episode of this of this show. But, anywho, this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast Thank you so much for joining me. I can't thank you enough. I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.